Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to learn about the 2007 film directed by Andrew Dominic called The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. That is, of course, the story of the assassination of Jesse James, who is played by Brad Pitt, by Robert Ford, who is played by Casey Affleck. It also stars Sam Rockwell, Mary Louise Parker, Jeremy Renner, and Sam Shepard, just to name a few. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, I'm excited to once again chat with Chris Wimmer. You might remember Chris when he came on Based on a True Story for episode number 142 to talk about the movie Tombstone, or episode number 146, where he helped us learn more about Billy the Kid and the movie Young Guns. Chris is the host and producer of two excellent podcasts that focus on American history called Legends of the Old West and Infamous America. Before we connect with Chris, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. The James gang stopped their outlawing ways because Jesse killed his brother Frank after the Blue Cut train robbery. Number two. After assassinating Jesse James, Charlie and Robert Ford reenacted the event on stage around the country. Number three. Jesse and Z James's children didn't know their father was Jesse James until after he was killed. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Chris Wimmer about the historical accuracy of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. The movie opens on September 7th, 1881, just two days after Jesse James's 34th birthday. We hear some voiceover that tells us the James gang committed over 25 bank, train, and stagecoach robberies from 1867 to 1881. And then we get to see one of those robberies, and what the movie says is their last train robbery in Blue Cut, Missouri. From this, we can get the sense for what the James Gang robberies might have been like. They put railroad ties on the tracks even before the sun goes down, and that forces the train to stop when it gets there. And we even get a bit of what I expect would be a bit of Hollywood cinematography's Brad Pitt's version of Jesse James stands on the railroad ties in front of the train right as it stops. And after it stops, the gang members board the train, and they split up to rob passengers as well as the safe on the train. Of course, for this robbery in particular, the movie mentions they thought there would be about $100,000 in the safe, and once they get it open, they find out there's not nearly that much. Now, since this is the only train robbery by the James Gang that we get to see in the movie, how well do you think it did depicting the way the James Gang robbed trains? Well, first, Dan, thanks again for having me back on. I appreciate it. These these movies are always fun, and I've certainly enjoyed our previous interviews, so I appreciate you bringing me back to talk about this movie specifically. Secondly, to answer your question, there's actually, I think, as as we talked about before we started recording, I'm going to do kind of a three-part answer on this one. And number one is that in general, yeah, they did a lot of things very accurately with this specific 
robbery. And then they also kind of blended in some other things that happened in other Jesse James robberies. I wanted to start with two quick things. One, I think, is is a personal favorite story of mine. It's an anecdote of of Hollywood and some fun behind the scenes, behind the curtain stuff. And the other is a little note about this film. So the note about the film is that this is one of the few instances where a Hollywood movie is based on a historical fiction novel. So I don't know how many people know that. I think most people know it's based on a book, but it's not based on a, you know, a, a strict, hard, true narrative nonfiction book. It's based on a novel. So the novelist took some liberties with the reality of the things he depicted. And then, of course, the movie goes even further with mixing some things up where it feels like they need to for drama in a future film. The anecdote that I always like to talk about with this is that somewhat factors into this idea that we don't know how much more there might have been in this train robbery sequence and some of the other sequences. And so what I want to talk about briefly is this mythical long version of this film. So there exists a version of this film that is somewhere between three and a half and four hours long. And a good friend of mine was fortunate enough to have seen that long version in Hollywood when he and I both lived there. And I don't, how, I can't remember how much your listeners might remember about my own personal story, but I lived and worked in Hollywood for about 15 years before I got into journalism and then podcasting. So one of the great perks of living in Hollywood is that you get opportunities to go to test screenings of movies long before the general public sees them. And so sometimes, you know, the sound isn't finished or the special effects aren't finished. It's an unfinished print, and the studio just wants to get a feel for how the audience is reacting to the film. So that process happened with Assassination of Jesse James several months before it came out in the theaters. And the test screening that they used, that Warner Brothers used for the film, was a three and a half hour version of the film. And so my good friend comes into work the next day. We're both working in in the same small TV studio. He comes into work the next day. He's seen this long version of Jesse James. And he, I've never seen a person so affected by a movie. He came in saying it was the greatest film he'd ever seen in his life. And this is a big statement from this guy. He's a cinephile. He sees lots of movies. He knows tons about film. He's a great cinematographer in his own right. And to have him say that about this movie that I don't think any of us had heard of, this is months before the movie came out. Maybe the trailer had been released, but not everybody knew about it. I don't think I'd heard of it. So my first reaction, my first knowledge of this film was hearing this guy say, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And so to this day, he remains one of the few people who have ever seen that long version. The three and a half hour version has never been released to the public. It's not on any DVD. As far as I know, there's no plans to release it. You know, if you go on the internet and you do a deep dive, you will find little references to it. Occasionally, the director, Andrew Dominic, will talk about it. If he does an interview, someone inevitably brings up the long version. And he keeps saying, you know, it's probably never going to come out. So unfortunately, my friend, well, fortunately for him, unfortunately for the rest of us, he's one of the few people who have ever seen that long version outside of the studio or the creators of the film. So to somewhat tie that into your question, we don't know how much more there might have been to this sequence and how much they might have put in there that they had to take out and how many other things might have been enhanced. But there's a whole other hour of footage out there that I would love to see at some point. And if you enjoy the film, hopefully you want to see it too. So maybe we should all petition Warner Brothers to finally release that on Blu-ray at some point here. So that's a little, that's a little tidbit and a little anecdote. Now here's the more direct answer to your question about this specific robbery. So the robbery is, is very close to the way it happened in real life. 
there's a few differences, of course, as there always are. So the gang that robbed the blue cut train was only six men. And a couple people who you see in the gang, it looks like there's probably 10 or 12 guys in the gang that robs the train in the film. A couple of the more prominent ones who you see in the film were not there in real life. And one of them was coincidentally Robert Ford, or ironically, Robert Ford was not at the blue cut robbery. We'll probably talk about that a little bit later. And another character, Ed Miller, was not there. And we will certainly discuss why he wasn't there a little bit later in the interview. But there's only six guys. But the other things you do see in the film are relatively accurate. The James Gang usually staged three guys on one side of the tracks and three guys on the other. So they kind of attacked the train from both sides when they did a robbery. At Blue Cut, they did pile some stuff on the tracks. In the movie, it looks like big pieces of wood. They've cut down some trees. In reality, it was a bunch of stones. They put a bunch of rocks on the train tracks. But you mentioned that cinematic moment of Brad Pitt stepping up onto the logs in the film with the lantern. Something like that did actually happen in real life. Jesse James had a lantern that he set on the pile of stones to signal to the train to stop. And what they used to do in those days was use a red signal flag, or in this case, a red lantern, to signal to the engineer that there's trouble up ahead and the train needs to stop. So Jesse's got this red lantern that he's waving back and forth and he puts it on the pile of stones. Of course, the engineer sees the stones, sees the red lantern and knows he he both needs to stop the train and he's about to get robbed. So then the robbery happens very close to the way it was in real life. The six guys run onto the train. They start stealing things from the passengers which was only the second time in Jesse James' career that they ever stole anything from passengers. Very rarely, well, only one other time did they steal from the passengers. So they steal things from the passengers. They go into the area where the safe should be, where they think in reality there was, they thought there was $75,000 in that train. And in reality, they only got 400 out of that safe. Now, what they didn't know was that there was another safe with more money in it in that train car, but it was hidden under chicken coops. By this point, so many trains have been robbed, and certainly by the James gang, that the railroads were starting to come up with clever ways to hide the money. They still had to transport it by train, but now they were starting to hide it in different places. So this is also the second time this had happened to the James gang. In their their very first train robbery, they think there's this huge shipment of money, and in reality, There kind of is, but only some of it is in real currency. The rest of it is in raw ore that's going to be refined into gold coins, and they can't take this shipment of raw ore because it's massive and it's way too heavy. So this is the second time where they've thought there's going to be a lot of money on there, and it turns out not to be the case. The other last thing to mention in there is something that I really love. You talk about the cinematography. I love the way that the film is shot. That opening sequence is fantastic. The other thing that's slightly different in this version is that they... Most of the guys didn't wear those kind of white hoods that make you think of KKK members. Although that was a technique, that was a strategy in the very first robbery. Again, both robberies, the very first robbery and the very last robbery are somewhat tied together in the film. In the first robbery, the James gang did wear these white hoods, white masks to try to trick investigators into thinking that the gang was part of the KKK. So they were throwing the investigators off their trail by faking membership in the KKK. And you see that tactic come back around in the film version of this robbery. They probably did wear masks in real life, but they're probably closer to what Jesse and Frank were wearing, just 
bandanas pulled up over their noses and mouths in the classic Old West fashion. I like how you mentioned how they tied the first and the last together in the film, because I would not have put those together at all. Yeah, they don't reference that first robbery. Get, like you said, they very rarely reference anything else that happens in the past. You just get little nuggets through mostly the voiceover, but these little things they, they use to tie together the real history of the story. Well, after that robbery, the blue cut robbery, Frank James says something to the effect of how they're giving up night riding for good. And as I was watching the movie, it made me think that one of the reasons why blue cut was their final robbery was because the take from the train just wasn't what they expected it to be. But then the movie also mentions that the original members of the gang were either in prison or dead, except for Frank and Jesse, of course. So Maybe the two brothers had already decided that their time was nearing an end and they knew that they were done. Did the James brothers decide to hang up their outlawing ways after the blue cut train robbery like the movie shows? To some degree, yeah. The short answer is that Frank did and Jesse didn't. Somewhat like you see in the film. You know, we never see another robbery. And in fact, there were no other robberies after blue cut. But Jesse, as we're going to talk about later, plans other robberies that he never carries out. But yeah, after the blue cut robbery, Frank basically goes straight. He moves out of Missouri and he moves to the East Coast and gives up a life of crime for good. And somewhat, it's also kind of a two-part answer that people who know the, the history of the James gang, they know that the big moment in the history of the James gang is the epic failed Northfield raid in Northfield, Minnesota. And so after Jesse and Frank get into this massive shootout with the, basically the whole town of Northfield in Minnesota, and they go on this crazy two-week journey to escape, they get home, and of course, they want to lay low for a while and recover. And during that time, Frank basically has decided he's given up a life of crime. Frank essentially goes straight after the failed Northfield robbery. But Jesse wants to get back into the life. He's always, he loves the fun. He loves the action. He loves the excitement of robbing. So he starts to assemble a new gang. He does a couple more robberies before Blue Cut that Frank is not a part of. But all of that activity ends up sucking Frank back in. So Frank does this one last job and then says, yes, he's done. And so after that, Frank separates and he goes off and settles in Lynchburg, Virginia. And then Jesse's life plays out more or less the way you see in the film. Okay, did that the way the movie depicts that... I got the sense that there was some disagreement between Frank and Jesse. I think the movie even mentions that they're not on speaking terms at the time that Frank leaves. I think he goes to Baltimore in the movie. I don't know if that was his final destination. They never really mentioned if he was going elsewhere to Virginia or something after that. But what was the relationship between Frank and Jesse like at that point? I think it was pretty similar to what you see in the movie, that it was at that point, it was almost certainly strained. The I guess it's the original second gang that Jesse formed. So after the after the Northfield robbery, Jesse and Frank lay low and recover for a while. And then Jesse is the one who builds up this second gang. And after a robbery or two with the second gang, things have started to go wrong. Some of those gang members have fallen away, and we're going to talk about some of those as we go through. But over the course of that time period, as Jesse is back robbing things and Frank is not a part of it, Frank doesn't like the decisions Jesse's making. He doesn't like the guys Jesse's involved with. So there's a, and Jesse's becoming more paranoid as this whole process unfolds. And so Jesse and Frank's relationship is definitely strained by the time the blue cut robbery happens. And because of Jesse's actions, 
Frank has been forced to move out of the life he's been building for himself in Tennessee. That's mostly where they spent their time after the Northfield raid. And so Frank is forced to move back to Kansas City, back to their home territory where they can be safe and kind of sequestered in the area where they know and they have friends and family, people who are going to protect them. And so Frank's life of going straight has been uprooted by Jesse. So they're definitely strained. And the blue cut robbery ends up just basically being the breaking point. And at that point, Frank moves away. And to my knowledge, they never speak again. I'm not aware of an instance, you know, I certainly would have been writing letters back and forth. And I don't think that happened. So to my knowledge, they never speak again. It's possible that, that Frank did go to Baltimore. One brief little episode you read about in the lives and careers of Frank and Jesse is that they both lived in Baltimore very, very briefly. And so it's possible that Frank did go back to Baltimore. But the trajectory that I know of is that after the blue cut robbery, he went to Tennessee and then North Carolina and then ultimately settled in Virginia. So there could have been a stop in Baltimore in there somewhere. Okay. Well, you mentioned the paranoia and we start to see some of this happen in the movie after the gang breaks up when Jesse finds out about a plan by a former gang member, Jim Cummins. Basically, the way the movie describes this is his plan is to capture and turn Jesse James in for the governor's reward. And according to the movie, Jesse finds out about it from another former gang member named Ed Miller. And then Jesse ends up killing Ed. Was there really this plan for some of his former gang to turn him in for the reward? Somewhat, though not these two guys. It's kind of factors into the very end of the story with Charlie and Robert Ford. But there is some drama between this trio of Ed Miller and Jim Cummins and Jesse, though all of that action happens before this movie actually starts. So this a year before the blue cut robbery is a robbery that's known as the Glendale train, the Glendale train robbery. You could actually hear that reference in, in songs as well, since we might end up talking about the famous Jesse James ballad that is sung at the end of the film. The Glendale train robbery is also mentioned in other songs. The Glendale train robbery is where things really start to go wrong for Jesse James. His new gang robs this train. One of the gang members gets caught afterwards. A guy who's a relatively minor player, he starts to talk about the gang members. He starts to give people up, which of course is what really starts fueling Jesse's paranoia. In Jesse's paranoia, Ed Miller disappears and his body is found on the side of a road and no one knows for sure that Jesse killed him, but everyone assumes it had to be. So it feels like to the gang members and to everybody who's in that world, Jesse's starting to clear up loose ends because he's afraid of what this gang member is saying to the police. This gang member's probably naming people to the police. So everyone assumes Jesse kills Ed Miller. Jim Cummins, an old friend of Jesse's, becomes very suspicious of Jesse. Jesse is giving conflicting answers about what happened to Ed Miller. Ed has just disappeared. Nobody really understands what has happened to him. And so Jesse's giving conflicting answers. Jim grows suspicious of Jesse. He starts grilling Jesse about what happened to Ed Miller. And as Jesse's answers change, Jim Cummins actually finds Ed Miller's horse in a stable at a place where Jesse is staying. So basically, it looks like Jesse has stolen Ed Miller's horse, and this solidifies for Jim that Jesse killed Ed Miller. And so at this point, this is also something you end up somewhat seeing in the film, though from the periphery, Jim 
goes on the run. He totally disappears. And this is another instance that fuels the paranoia of Jesse and then Frank. Suddenly, Jim is on the run. He knows everything. He's been with the guys, been friends with the guys for a long time. They all fought in the Civil War together. They're old war buddies. So the things that Jim could say would be very damning for the James brothers. But then Jim just goes on the run and disappears. Nobody sees him again. He stays on the run for like 25 years. And so after he's gone for a little while, Frank and Jesse start to settle down and think, okay, I guess he's not going to the police. But that's the kind of weird uh, situation between Ed Miller, Jim Cummins, and Jesse. So you do see Jesse trying to find Jim Cummins in the movie and being paranoid that Jim is gone, but it's not really connected the way it appears to be in the movie. Jim is not working with the police or hasn't gone to the cops, but Jesse's scared that he might. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Okay. It sounds like in the movie and possibly, you know, the, the book that it's based on, then they're, they're changing the timeline a little bit to add things in kind of like with the train robbery where they add elements of the first robbery in with the last one to mix it together. A little bit of creative license there to, to do that. It sounds like they're adding in some of the paranoia from previous into this timeline in order to give a little bit of what it might have been like with Jesse James prior to the actual timeline of the film itself. Yeah, they're just heightening the paranoia. It's, you know, Jesse probably felt all of this paranoia. It was just spread out over a much longer timeline. So for the film, they're putting all of these events together and crunching the timeline so that it heightens Jesse's paranoia and just adds to the drama. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking of the movie, there is another rift that we see between two other gang members or former gang members. It would be Dick Little and Wood Height. And as the movie explains it, the two were visiting Wood's father at his house, Major George Height, and Dick has an affair with George's wife, Sarah. So later, and presumably after Wood finds out about the affair, we never really, I don't think they actually point that out specifically, but it's very heavily implied that he must have found out about it. So he comes chasing after Dick Little and nearly kills him until he is shot by Robert Ford, who also happens to be in the room when Wood came charging in shooting. Did this feud between Dick Little and Wood Height really happen and end the way the movie shows by Robert Ford killing his former colleague in the James Gang? Yes, the feud did happen. The end of it does happen very similar to what you see in the movie. 
The couple changes are that Dick Little and Wood Height were feuding, but they were feuding over the sister of Charlie and Robert Ford. So as you see in the movie, Bob and Charlie and Dick Little and various other characters, you see a central house where they're all, some of them are living or at the very least they stop by. Jesse stops by every now and then. So that home in real life is the home of Martha Bolton, who is the sister of Bob and Charlie Ford. She kind of runs this boarding house for these guys and any strangers who happen to stop by. And her house is basically the headquarters. That's where everybody gathers and plans things and hangs out and they constantly rendezvous at her house. So Wood, Height, and Dick Little are both sweet on Bob and Charlie's sister and that's why they're feuding. And they do get into a shooting scrape at the house of Wood Height's father in Kentucky. As you see in the movie, Jesse has summoned them to the home of Wood Height's father. And during that sequence, Wood Height and Dick Little end up shooting at each other in the yard and then they separate. They, that's the last straw for those two guys. They've been fighting over Martha. They exchange gunshots with each other. And then Dick Little rides back to Missouri and Wood comes back later. And both guys end up in Martha Bolton's home. And the, they end up shooting at each other again over the breakfast table. So they, it, they move the sequence from the breakfast table up into the house in the film or up into the bedroom in the film in real life. These two guys are standing basically over a table, just a few feet apart from each other, firing guns at each other. And you don't really know for sure how the sequence ends, but Wood Height ends up getting shot in the head and he dies. And for the rest of his life, Robert Ford claims that he's the one who killed Wood Height. Though I don't think anybody knows definitively that that's how it happened. But those three guys were there. Dick Little and Wood Height were shooting at each other, and Wood Height does end up dead. I guess we have to take Robert Ford's word for it that he's the one who killed Wood Height, though I guess it could certainly have been Dick Little. <laughs> you mentioned they're shooting at each other. And when I was watching the movie, you know, Wood Height charges in and he's shooting. He's like, You are maybe a foot away <laughs> in the movie and just almost empties his chamber and can't hit him. It's like, man, you're a terrible shot. <laughs> It's one of those things that just looks absurd on film, but it, it really did happen that way in real life. And you know, another quick nugget about the Old West is that there are very few just classic gunfights where two guys walk out into the street and pull their guns and fire at each other. When it did happen, it, most times it was because the guys were drunk and they were blind drunk and they were doing basically what you see in the movie. They're starting very close to each other and they don't hit anything because they're too drunk to see. So they're firing wildly in all directions and nothing gets hit except for buildings or unfortunately some random bystanders. So as absurd as it might seem in the film that these two guys are so close to each other and can't hit anything, something like that does happen and happens somewhat regularly in the Old West. It's just wild. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because it did seem ridiculous while I was watching it. I was like, really? <laughs> like yeah, it's, I feel the same way every time I see it. When I just watched the movie again before this interview... Every time that scene comes up, I think, oh, that's right. We're about to see these guys look like they're four feet from each other. The barrels are almost touching each other and they still can't hit each other. So, yeah, it's just it's the nerves of the situation. And more often than not, it's because the guys are so drunk. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, when you see Robert Ford shooting Wood Height in the movie, it almost is the exact opposite of that and be like, OK, these two guys can't hit each other. And then Robert Ford is able to get a headshot from even further away. Yeah, he's. He, he becomes a little more cold-blooded and clinical in that moment. 
Well, the killing of Wood Height isn't the only time that we see Robert Ford, or they call him Bob in the movie, turning on someone that he used to ride with. We also see him going to the police commissioner in Kansas City, and then he tells him where Dick Little is hiding out. And before long, we see cops surround the house and capture him, being Dick Little. So that becomes the second time that the movie shows Robert Ford betraying one of the guys who used to be in the James Gang. Did he really do that? Not to that extent, and not specifically with Dick Little, though there might be some of that in the shadows of the story. It's hard to tell. But the quick sequence of events is that, yes, the cops did raid Martha Bolton's home looking for Dick Little, but they don't find him. He jumps out of a window and runs into the woods and hides in the woods until the police go away. But after that, it's pretty clear that the cops are closing in on Jesse's gang and the various members of Jesse's gang. So it's actually Martha Bolton, the sister of Bob and Charlie Ford, who goes to the governor with this offer. She says she can bring in Dick Little. He wants to talk. Dick Little wants to surrender. He will voluntarily start working with the governor and this task force, basically, that the governor has built to bring down the James gang. So Martha offers up Dick Little on Dick Little's suggestion. And while she's there, she says, oh, by the way, my brother Bob also wants to be a part of this. He thinks he can help bring in Jesse James. So that's how Bob starts to really formulate this plan to turn in Jesse. Um, So he didn't really have a hand, I don't think, in the almost capture of Dick Little. But that's how the sequence begins, where he starts to work with the governor to eventually bring down Jesse. Okay. Yeah, that's very different than what I remember seeing in the movie where we see a cutaway of Bob going (laughs) to the police and it's like, okay, he's the only one there. So he's kind of doing this on his own. Yeah, he didn't. As far as I'm aware, now it's certainly possible. Tried to look it up again. I did, you know, went back to my research. I don't remember how exactly the police get to Martha Bolton's home to look for Dick Little. It's possible that Bob Ford had tipped them off, but I don't think that's what happened. So to my knowledge, Bob didn't betray Dick Little. He just ended up starting to capitalize on the situation. Dick Little is about to turn himself in. He's using Bob's sister to connect him to the governor. So Bob just kind of piggybacks off that. Was that sort of betrayal from guys who used to ride together a common occurrence after the gang broke up? After the original gang broke up, it was certainly more common, but it was absolutely not beforehand. The original James gang were very tight-knit, very close bunch of guys. And so there really is kind of a first half and a second half of Jesse James' career. So the original gang were guys with the younger brothers and several others who all grew up together. They all fought in the Civil War together. They had this bond from having been guerrilla fighters in the Civil War, and they would never turn on each other. And in fact, they didn't. After the Northfield raid, the younger brothers famously don't say a word about the involvement of Jesse James and Frank James in the Northfield raid. They won't even acknowledge that Frank and Jesse were at the raid, even though everybody knows they were. So those guys famously kept their mouths shut. Now, the problem comes in with the robbery that leads to the Northfield raid. So the part of the reason the Northfield raid happens at all is that Jesse and Frank decide to include this new guy in the gang, this young kind of hanger-on who really wants to be a part of the gang, they decide to bring him along on a robbery, 
But this young guy is much more in it for the the flash and the image and the aura of being an outlaw and being able to claim that he's an outlaw. So they go through with the robbery. This guy gets drunk. He starts flashing around all his money and starts running his mouth about being an outlaw. And of course, he gets caught. And he's the first one who starts talking about the James gang. He names names to the police. All of that information finds its way into the newspapers. And so now there's a ton of heat on Frank and Jesse, which ends up somewhat pushing them to get out of Missouri and ride up to Minnesota and rob a bank where they've never been before. So they're both escaping the heat of Missouri and drawing attention away from Missouri by robbing a bank in Minnesota. And of course, that just goes, like I said, spectacularly wrong. But that's part of the reason why, why there's this first half, second half thing. So this first guy in the first gang betrays the gang and he's the first one. But then in the second gang, it starts happening fairly regularly. So after the Glendale robbery, one of the gang members gets caught. He talks to the police. After another small robbery that Jesse is a part of down in Alabama, a guy in that robbery gets caught and he's going to testify against the first guy. So Jesse's gang members are starting to fall like crazy. And this, again, as we're going to talk about in a little bit too, keeps fueling his paranoia. So the idea of being betrayed comes much more in second half, but not in the first half of the career. The way you explain that really helps me put together this this bigger picture of why Jesse James was getting more and more paranoid as the years went on, right? If he if more and more members of his gang are essentially turning on him, well, that would lead to paranoia. I'll certainly elaborate on it a little bit. I think the next thing we are thinking about talking about, I think I'll, I can go a little further with it. And you can really see the path of Jesse's paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to the movie, we see Charlie Ford managed to convince Jesse James to let his brother, Robert, join up with them again. And so we see there's essentially three of them now, Jesse, Charlie, and Robert. And they're living alongside Jesse's wife, Z, and their two kids. And this was interesting because Jesse's wife and kids almost seem to show up out of nowhere. They're not really mentioned at the beginning of the movie that much. I think Z was around when Frank left, but really almost all of a sudden, Robert is helping them move houses, and then he's there staying with them. He's helping out around the house alongside Jesse's wife and kids. And as I was watching this, I was conflicted by what the movie was trying to say. So hopefully you can help clarify this. On one hand, we get the idea that Charlie had to convince Jesse to let Robert back into his good graces. There's even some dialogue where Jesse says something about how he's comfortable around Charlie, but not so much for you, Bob. Like, he's not comfortable around Robert. But on the other hand... We also see Charlie and Robert seemingly living with Jesse James and his wife and kids. So he must have had some level of trust for both Ford brothers to let them around his family. How did the movie do showing this side of the relationship between Jesse James and the two Ford brothers? I think it did a pretty good job for the time that was allowed or the time they could spend doing this. Again, who knows what that that mythical three and a half hour version might have showed in this context. But I think they did a pretty good job. Jesse was pretty close with Charlie Ford. They were closer in age. Charlie's the older of the two brothers. So Jesse and Charlie become pretty good friends. Charlie was a part of the blue cut robbery. As I said before, Bob was not. Bob was only 18 when he first met Jesse James. And so when we get to this moment in the film, as we're winding toward the end or the second half of the film, Bob, as I believe now about 20 years old, 
but he's never committed a crime with the gang. He's never really done anything, to my knowledge. He's never committed any crime. And so Jesse's pretty comfortable with Charlie, but probably not as comfortable with Bob, but maybe not as awkward as the relationship seems. It's hard to tell how that relationship really would have been in real life. But as we start, as we, as we start moving along through the film, this is where I was referencing just a second ago. By this point in the story and the movie, certainly, Bob and Charlie Ford are really the only guys left around Jesse. As we've talked about, his gang members have been slowly dwindling for about a year and a half now, or maybe a couple years now, where Ed Miller is dead by Jesse's hand. Jim Cummins has disappeared. Wood Height is no longer around. Jesse, of course, is not quite sure what has happened to his cousin Wood Height, but Wood's not around. Dick Little has been acting very strange since the disappearance of Wood Height. And Clarence Height, the younger brother of Wood, who was one of the gang members on the Glendale train robbery a year before Blue Cut, has now been recently captured. So that's another gang member who's been captured. So three of Jesse's gang members over a space of about a year and a half have been captured. His cousin Wood Height has disappeared. Jim Cummins has disappeared. Bob and Charlie are the only guys left. So if you start stacking all those things up, you can start to see how Jesse's paranoia is really starting to work over time. And so he's he really has only these two guys left to trust. So if he wants to keep robbing, and of course, like I said earlier, Frank James is on the East Coast. He's no longer a part of it. So almost by necessity, Jesse keeps Bob and Charlie close. Because if he wants to do any kind of robbing, he needs some kind of gang. And these are the only two guys left. You mentioned when Bob at this point hadn't actually done anything. And I think he does mention his age at the, the blue cut robbery in the movie, which, of course, you know, he, he wasn't actually there. But I also get the sense from the movie that he almost fills the role of something that you were talking about earlier, the, the guy earlier who wanted to join the gang for the, you know, the flash of it, because we get the sense that Robert Ford in the movie has read all these novels about Jesse James, and he's, Jesse James is essentially his hero in the beginning of the movie, especially. Did Robert Ford have that sort of relationship with Jesse James where he looked up to him as a hero, or was he almost there just because of his brother Charlie being close to Jesse? I think it was a little bit of both. I do think there was a little bit of this idol worship idea from Bob Ford, because some of the References you do see both visually and in dialogue to dime novels or nickel novels. Maybe I think somebody, maybe Frank talks about them costing five cents or something like that. The pulp novels are starting to be written by this time. And certainly there have been volumes written in the newspapers about the James boys. And John Newman Edwards, specifically a newspaper editor in Kansas City, writes huge, huge articles, whole sections of newspapers dedicated to glorifying the James boys and Jesse specifically. So even if I can't remember specifically when the first, you know, real uh, pulp novel, dime novel about Jesse James comes out, but it's right around this time. Um, So even if there aren't a whole stockpile of those books yet available in 1882, they're on their way. And these guys, there would have been plenty for Bob to read. So from what I understand, I think he does worship Jesse to some degree. But at the same time, yes, his brother's with Charlie, and so he's connected to Jesse by extension. Okay. The movie mentions that 
even though the Blue Cut train robbery was their last one, that there's also a plan for more. And I think you mentioned this briefly earlier as well. According to the movie, Jesse James plans robberies across Nebraska, Colorado, Missouri. But then it says that none of them were ever carried out. And later in the movie, there's a point where Charlie Ford suggests to Robert that their plan for the Platte City robbery was never real either. It's heavily implied that Charlie thinks that robbery plan was all a ruse so Jesse can get the two brothers alone and kill them. That makes me wonder about some of those other plans. Were they real or were they also just elaborate ruses to achieve some other goal with Jesse's paranoia going on? What do we know about Jesse James' plans to do robberies and why they were never actually carried out? I think they were real plans. Over the course of the years, the James gang planned several robberies that they didn't carry out. So I tend to believe that they were real plans. My guess would be they weren't an an elaborate plan for maybe Jesse to draw out Bob and Charlie, though it's not not out of the realm of possibility, without a doubt. He certainly could have been trying that. But I think they were real. And I think he, I think the one that they talk about, the Platte City robbery, I believe that is, that's the one that seems to have the most creditable plans to it, that they were planning a bank robbery in Missouri at the time that Jesse was killed. So I think in my mind, I give, I guess, Jesse credit that he was planning this robbery. They were putting a plan together. And then, of course, it didn't work out. Okay, well, speaking of it not working out, we're getting closer to the actual assassination itself. But according to the movie, on April 1st, we see Jesse James give Robert Ford a gun. It's his way of apologizing for, as the movie puts it, being ornery as of late. And he blames his orneriness on government making him feel cornered. Is it true that Jesse James gave Robert Ford the gun that he eventually was killed with just a few days later? As far as I'm aware, no. I haven't seen any evidence that Jesse gave the gun to Bob, but the gun that you see in the movie, the the gun that Bob does use at the end of the film, that is basically an exact replica of the gun that Bob Ford did own. And that gun, Robert Ford's gun, when it was sold at auction several years ago now, I believe it's still the, the record setter for weapons purchased at auction from the old west you know famous guns who were used by famous lawmen or outlaws or whoever they were blackjack ketchum's gun fetched a huge amount uh wild bill hickok's weapons but i believe robert ford's gun still holds the record for uh sale at auction at over two hundred and forty thousand dollars, i believe is what someone paid for it but if you look up pictures of it it looks identical to the one that they use in the film but to my knowledge Jesse didn't give that gun to Bob. Certainly possible. I just haven't found it anywhere. Again, I, I try to qualify these things because, you know, I've, I read a lot about this stuff, but I, some people spend their entire lives researching this one story. So maybe it's buried somewhere deep in the archives, but I've never seen it. What about the idea that Jesse James was feeling ornery because he was starting to feel cornered? I know we kind of talked about his paranoia and how it was building up at this point, but at this point on April 1st, you know, just a couple of days before he was killed, was he was he really feeling cornered at this point, like the movie suggests? I don't think he was feeling any more cornered than what we discussed previously, that it had just been a long buildup, that there were recent arrests of his gang members. And I would say recent, I mean, within a few months, it wasn't like in a series of a few days, they just, the, the cops started circling them up like you might see in a movie. 
where gang members start dropping. But yes, there were two guys arrested for that Glendale train robbery, one arrested for the robbery in Alabama. Like I said, Wood Height is gone. Dick Little is gone. Jim Cummins is gone. And that's part of the reason why you see in the movie, Jesse moves around so often and in the middle of the night. That stuff is pretty accurate where he has Bob and Charlie help him move from place to place. Uh, or he himself just does it, and he's always using aliases, some version of a name with the word Howard in it. Uh, he usually uses the last name Howard, but he'll change his first and middle name for his alias every now and then. So by the time he's in St. Joseph, Missouri, he's Thomas Howard, like you see in the film. But I don't think there was anything specifically that happened just in the day or two leading up to the final day of his life. Okay, well, speaking of... The final day. We're at the point in the movie where the assassination itself happens. It's on April 3rd, 1882. And the day's plan, according to the movie, seems to be that they're going to leave for the Platte City robbery that they had planned out. And things turn sour after reading a newspaper headline about the arrest and confession of Dick Little. Jesse turns to Robert and says something about how the article says Dick was arrested about three weeks earlier. And that would mean Robert was in that area around the same time. And after that, the three go into the living room. There's a lot of tension in the air. Jesse James takes off his gun belt, saying something about how he doesn't want the neighbors to see. Then he notices a picture of a horse hanging at the top of the wall, which I thought was an interesting place for it to be hanging right across, right next to the ceiling. He comments about how dusty the picture is, grabs a chair to stand up and get it. And while he's standing on the chair, Charlie pulls out his gun, starts to point at Jesse, but then Robert pulls his gun, points, and shoots Jesse James is hit in the back of the head, falls down dead. Immediately after this, Z James, his wife, comes running into the room crying, and the two Ford brothers say it was an accident. The gun just went off. They leave the house and then immediately run to send a telegram to the governor saying that they killed Jesse James. Is that how it happened? I'll give you my shortest answer ever, and that is yes. Wow. That's basically how it happened. I mean, if I elaborate a little bit, the thing to keep in mind is that there were only three people in that room. So the version of how it happened comes from Bob and Charlie Ford. They're the only ones who survived that meeting in the room who were able to tell the story. So we have to take all of it with a grain of salt, though, as far as we know, the movie basically just reenacted what we know of that moment, which, of course, comes from Bob and Charlie. That's a great point that we have to believe what they say. Yeah. And so it's the million dollar question is why, I guess. And, you know, maybe we can, we could talk about that, but yeah, it's as far as we know from the actions, that's accurate to the point that we're ever going to know. One of the things that really struck me about that, and especially as you mentioned there, where we're taking this all on the word of Charlie and, and Robert Ford were the only two that survived. I really got the sense that Jesse James knew what was going to happen we even see, I think, when he stands up there, we can see from Jesse's point of view that he can see Robert Ford pointing the gun at him in the reflection of the picture, and he doesn't seem surprised. And and as I mentioned earlier, he actually took his gun off, so he's unarmed. So I got the idea that he knew that they were going to kill him, and he essentially let it happen. Were there any theories that Jesse James maybe knew that he was about to be assassinated and just let it happen? It's hard to say, were there any? I, there probably are tons. It's trying to figure out if this sequence of events is what happened. If you believe that this, these are the actions that took place in that living room, then yeah, what you're talking about, the theories it more come to, 
why? Why did Jesse allow this to happen? It was true, as you see in the film. He famously doesn't take his guns off. He carries them everywhere. So the idea that he makes this display of taking off his guns in his own living room and uses this weird excuse of saying he's afraid that people out in public might see him wearing his guns in his own house when one of the scenes we have just seen right before this is him walking home with his daughter in his arms wearing his guns and Bob calls him out on it and saying, do you, do you think it's wise of you to walk around carrying your guns like that? So he clearly, Jesse clearly doesn't have a problem wearing his guns wherever and whenever, but suddenly now he takes off his guns and then decides he needs at this very moment to go urgently clean the dust off this picture, which you kind of get the feeling he probably never would have done something like that in his life. You see, probably in the customs of the time, probably did all the housework. So the whole sequence is just odd. And so maybe he did, though. Maybe at at this point in his life, he's tired and weary, which you also see in the film. He seems to be run down and worn out. And as we've talked about a couple different times, the paranoia is huge. He's lost almost everyone in his life. Maybe he is just done and just decides... This is it. He's just read about the arrest of Dick Little, yet another one of his gang members has turned on him. The ramifications from that could be huge. Maybe he just decided, that's it, I'm done. And this was his way of just easing the tired, the weariness, and making it all end. Yeah, I could definitely see how that would be. That's an entire podcast <laughs> talking about the, those theories and all that. And wow, yeah, that, that's a, a deep subject to get into. <laughs> Yeah, no question. This is one of those moments, I guess I start thinking of them as time machine moments. If you had a time machine, you could go back anywhere in time. This is one of the moments that almost certainly Old West historians would love to go back and see, even in its morbidity, did this really happen this way? And if so, why? If you could go back in time, would you want to spend the week being the fly on the wall with Jesse James and finding out what really happened in his final week? What was he thinking? What did he say to people that would give us some insight into this last moment? And did it, in fact, happen like this? Yeah, that would be fascinating to be able to witness that. But until they have a time machine, I guess we'll just have to never know. We'll just keep speculating. Yeah. Hopefully somebody gets on that time machine real quick. Let's let's get that figured out. (laughs) Well, earlier you mentioned the movie doing a good job of reenacting the assassination, at least as far as the version from Charlie and Robert Ford. And in the movie, we actually see Charlie and Robert Ford take to the stage, reenacting the assassination as well. The narrator of the film explains that Robert Ford himself said he must have reenacted the event over 800 times. And as time went on, we start to see that Charlie's onstage personality changed. He playing Jesse James and he starts to act more and more like the real outlaw. During one of the performances that we see in the movie, someone in the crowd calls Robert a coward. He yells back at them, and then the the patron in attendance doesn't stop his heckling, so Robert jumps off the stage and starts beating the man up. Did they really have a stage show reenacting the assassination of Jesse James? Yeah, they did, and, that, and that's probably, to some degree, how, why, how we think things happen. That stage play is probably somewhat responsible for why we believe, how we believe the, the final moments of Jesse James happened. So yes, they did. They went on tour reenacting night after night the assassination of Jesse James. Somewhat like you see in the movie and in that little reenactment within the movie, 
I don't know for sure if Charlie, Charlie's persona changes throughout the series of reenactments, though it certainly wouldn't surprise me because his story does have a tragic end. So does Bob's. But as you see in the film, in the two sequences where you see those reenactments, in the first one, the audience cheers kind of politely. They certainly don't give it a rousing ovation, but that's what happened in real life. In New York City, the play was received fairly well. But in Louisville, Kentucky is where the second half of that sequence happens, where people booed and jeered and shouted murderer and coward. That stuff really did happen in Louisville. I I don't know if Bob actually jumped down from the stage and went and attacked someone, but everything prior to that does happen. That's interesting. I'm curious, do we know why why they would reenact the assassination? I mean, earlier in the movie, they talk about turning in Jesse James for the reward. And then, you know, they send the telegram letting him know. And so I'm assuming that there was some sort of a reward for killing Jesse James. This is just my assumption. I don't remember the movie ever mentioning this at all, but I'm guessing that they didn't necessarily do the reenactment for the money if they got the reward. So maybe it was just for the publicity of it all. They wanted their own time in the spotlight. Yeah, I think it's a combination of all those things and a third thing or those two things and a third thing. So yes, they did receive some of the reward money. They did not get all of the reward money. And I was quickly trying to look it up before we started the interview, but I couldn't find the exact amount. I know it's buried in one of my scripts somewhere. So it was a pretty hefty reward for the James brothers or for Jesse James individually. But Bob and Charlie were forced to split it with several law enforcement officials, which they didn't count on. They assumed they would receive the entire reward money. It's possible they had been led to believe that by the governor, but in the end, they got a fraction of the reward. So it's possible that they wanted to do this reenactment to make money because they thought it would be a big box office hit. And then almost certainly, probably for Bob's sake, probably he was interested in the publicity as well. So there probably was a monetary aspect to it and a publicity aspect. And then the third thing, which again would seem odd in today's day and age, but this type of reenactment was fairly common in the Old West. This was considered entertainment to people. You know, back then, live entertainment was all that existed. So famously, this is how Buffalo Bill rose up the ranks and with his shows. And he recruited Wild Bill Hickok to come out on stage and reenact some of his famous events. And especially on the East Coast, people found out very quickly Wild Bill Hickok was a terrible actor. And Hickok hated doing these things. These reenactments of famous events were fairly common. So there was probably money a part of this and publicity, but this was also a practice that happened with a lot of people. So Bob and Charlie were were somewhat following the form that had already been laid out. As you're saying that, it makes me think of, it's like the original movies based on a true story, right? Except they just didn't have movies. So it was a live performance based on a real event. Yeah. And you got to think of how weird that would have been sitting in a stage in, in an audience in an auditorium somewhere on the East Coast and Wild Bill Hickok's up on this small stage trying to reenact something that happened out on the prairie, maybe a battle with Native Americans or a gunfight or something. And it just it would have looked as weird as it looks with Pop and Charlie doing this reenactment, this very stilted, very crammed into a small space. And it just It would not have had any resemblance, of course, to what actually happened, but it was entertainment. And you you could either read a book or watch a live performance of music or watch a live stage play. Those were basically your three options for entertainment in the 1870s. Well, earlier you mentioned the 
tragedy that happens at the end of Charlie and Robert's lives. And at the end of the movie, we find out a few different things. One is they seem to regret what they did. The movie mentions that Charlie wrote letters to Jesse's widow, Z, asking for her forgiveness, but he never actually sent them. We do see Charlie commit suicide. Then Robert, in the movie at least, uh, admitted to a woman named Dorothy Evans that he was ashamed of his boasting and he truly regretted killing Jesse James. He missed the man that he once looked up to. And then the very end, of course, we see that Robert Ford is killed by someone named Edward O'Kelly. Do we know if the Ford brothers regretted what they had done? And is the movie showing the end of the story correctly? Yeah, mostly. I don't know if we can speak truly to the mindset of either Bob or Charlie, but I think what ended up happening to them can probably give us some insight into the way they were thinking, even even in Bob's special case, which is is very odd. You know, I referenced earlier that Bob had never really committed a crime with the gang, but it's possible that if he did shoot Wood Height in his sister's home there in Martha Bolton's home, that could have been the first crime he committed. And then his second might have been shooting Jesse James. So if those were his only two real crimes committed in life, they're pretty big ones. And so it's possible that Charlie or that Bob did grow to regret his actions and he had a difficult life afterwards. His actions followed him throughout. He might have thought somewhat like John Wilkes Booth after he assassinated President Lincoln, that he would be hailed as this hero for bringing down this wanted criminal, but tables quickly turned on him and he was haunted by and dogged by the reality of having killed Jesse James for the rest of his life. It followed him everywhere he went. And before I get to the end of his story, Charlie probably did express more regret. He does have a little more of a tragic end where, like you see in the film, he does sink into a very dark place. He became addicted to morphine and eventually came down with tuberculosis. And then in 1884, just two years after, almost exactly two years after the death of Jesse James, he shoots himself in the chest. So that part is accurate. Charlie did sink into this dark, depressed place and killed himself. And then Bob goes on to a series of different cities after their stage, their stage play wraps up. And he does eventually end up in Creed, Colorado. And a man named Edward Kelly, or sometimes Edward O. Kelly, depending on the source, they'll put an O in there. So it's hard to tell exactly what his name was. But Edward Kelly or Edward O. Kelly does shoot Bob Ford with a shotgun in Bob's saloon that he runs there in Creed, Colorado. That moment specifically, the very end of the film and the end of Bob's life where this guy, Ed, Edward Kelly or Edward O. Kelly, walks in and says, hello, Bob, and then shoots Bob forward with a shotgun is particularly interesting to me because that almost identical situation happens in the story of Billy the Kid with somewhat of the roles reversed, where Billy shoots a guy who is a lawman who's been after him for a while with a shotgun and famously startles him by saying the words, hello, Bob, and then pulls the triggers and, and kills this guy. And so I've, I've always wondered if this moment, if that's really how it happened, or if those two stories ended up getting mixed up together, that Billy supposedly said hello, Bob, to this guy before shooting with a shotgun, and Edward O'Kelly ends up saying almost identical language and shooting Bob Ford with a shotgun. So I'll never know. That's just one of my little suspicions. But yeah, that's basically how it happened. They were, again, pretty accurate with the end of the film. 
One thing that we don't really see in the end of the movie is what happens to Jesse's wife, Z James, and their two children. Do we know what happened with them after the assassination? Yeah, I don't know a ton about the very end of their story, but in the immediate aftermath, there's an aspect of this that maybe plays into Jesse's mindset. And as you somewhat see at the end of the film, people swarm the James home. They flood to the James house. And of course, law enforcement is there trying to figure out what's going on. The house quickly turns into a tourist attraction, the place where Jesse James was killed. So in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, Z and her two children go stay at a hotel that's right around the corner. And their lives, of course, get turned upside down. And one of the aspects that I'm not sure people really think about, and they don't really touch on it in the film, is that up until this point, Jesse's kids have believed their last name is Howard. They've been living under aliases their entire lives, and they're very young still, but they think their last name is Howard, and they have no idea who their father really is. So the first conversation Z has to have with her kids is, hey, sorry, your name isn't Howard. Your father isn't Thomas Howard. He's really Jesse James, and here's who and what Jesse James was. So that's the first conversation she has to have with her children. And then this is the part that maybe factors into Jesse's mindset is that he basically left them destitute. He had no money at the end of his life. Whenever he had money, he spent it. And so, you know, the idea that maybe he was ready to go by the end of his life, this could be an element that pushes back on that idea because he certainly didn't have this life insurance policy or something like that that he could have left to his kids. He didn't have a nest egg. He didn't have thousands of dollars stuck under the mattress or anything like that. So if he decided at the end of his story that it's just his time to go, he left his family with nothing. So Z was forced to sell all their possessions to make money. So they begin a life of struggle after that because he leaves them with nothing. And of course, she's now the famous widow of Jesse James and her kids grew up to live somewhat difficult lives early on. Although this, if you fast forward the story, Toward the end, Jesse James' son ends up playing his father, Jesse James, in the first movie about Jesse James that, that comes out. When the, when the film industry starts, and this is in the early 20s, Jesse James was Jesse James Jr., basically is what we'll call him. He ends up playing Jesse James Sr. in the first film depiction of his father. So, so he ends up working in Hollywood to some degree, to a little bit at the end of his life. So that's what I can tell you about what happened in the immediate aftermath and then fast forwarding a little bit. You actually answered the, the two primary questions that I had about that, which, because uh, I, I do remember the narrator at the very beginning of the movie mentions that his kids didn't even know his name. I think that was the only mention there. And so there was that aspect of it, but then also, yeah, some of that why mindset, if Jesse James really did know that they were going to assassinate him and let it happen. Well, in my mind, just for, you know, from watching the movie, the sense that I got was even, you know, even though he was a vicious outlaw, he loved his wife and kids. And so he would have set them up with something like he would have had some sort of a nest egg or something. If he had known that this was going to happen, it would, I don't know. It just, I guess, makes sense to me that a husband and father would make sure that his family is taken care of if he knows that this is going to happen. Yeah, I want to believe that as well. Exactly. I feel the same way. It sounds like he was a doting father. He'd been in love with Z forever. They they met when they were kids and they were technically or legally cousins, I guess I should say. She was the daughter of Jesse's step uncle, I believe. 
So her diseased father was the brother of Jesse's mother's third husband. So I know that's going to be very convoluted, but there are ways to make it much more sense. So they're technically related, but they're not related by blood. And so they meet during the Civil War when Jesse, as you hear in the film, Jesse has been shot twice in the chest. He was shot two times toward the end of the Civil War. Both times he was taken to his stepfather's uncle's house in Kansas City to recover where Z was living. So Z cared for him during both times when he was convalescing for bullet wounds. And during that second convalescence, during that second recovery period is when they really began to fall in love when they were both basically kids. So they've essentially been together for their entire lives. And so the idea that he decided to end things in this way at this time without making any allowances for his family is probably a little bit difficult to believe. But at the same time, you know, he, he never really was one to save anything. He, if he had it, he spent it. So it's, it's hard to tell. It's just, it's another mystery that we may never know the answer to. Still waiting on that time machine. <laughs> I know. So please, somebody, please figure it out. But thank you so much for your time to come on to chat about the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I know you went into a lot more detail on Jesse James for your podcast. So can you give someone listening a little more information about your show and where to find it? Yeah, I actually host and produce two shows. The one that specifically deals with Jesse James is called Legends of the Old West. I actually have done the story of Jesse James twice, and that's a whole, that's a whole saga in and of itself. But there's plenty of Jesse James material on the Legends of the Old West podcast where I go into a lot of detail about all these things. And you can see the whole timeline of Jesse's life and career. I think you can go into as much detail as you want. And then the other one is called Infamous America, which is similar. And that's kind of where I was pulling some of that Billy the Kid reference that deals with anything and anyone in American history that's considered infamous. So we did the story of John Wilkes Booth and Billy the Kid on that podcast as well. So the Infamous America podcast and the Legends of the Old West. Get your American history fix. Thanks again so much for your time, Chris. Thank you, Dan. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Chris Wimmer for his time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. If you want to dig even deeper into the story of Jesse James, go subscribe to Chris's awesome podcast called Legends of the Old West. And while you're at it, subscribe to his other show called Infamous America to get a deep dive into other stories in American history like Billy the Kid, the Black Sox scandal, the Salem witch trials, John Dillinger, and more. And of course, if you're driving or unable to search for them right now, then I'll make sure to add a link to his podcast in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the James gang stopped their outlawing ways because Jesse killed his brother Frank after the blue cut train robbery. Number two, after assassinating Jesse James, Charlie and Robert Ford reenacted the event on stage around the country. Number three, Jesse and Z James's children didn't know their father was Jesse James until after he was killed. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's count it down and start with number three. Jesse and Z James's children didn't know their father was Jesse James until after he was killed. That is, 
true. As Chris explained, Jesse James used a lot of aliases, and the one he used toward the end of his life was that of Thomas Howard. So that's what his kids knew him as. That means after Jesse was assassinated, it was up to his wife Z to explain to their kids that not only was their father killed, but his name was not Thomas Howard. Their last name wasn't Howard. Their father was Jesse James. That brings us to number two. After assassinating Jesse James, Charlie and Robert Ford reenacted the event on stage around the country. That is also true. In the wake of the assassination, Charlie and Robert Ford reenacted the assassination hundreds of times. As Chris pointed out, at some locations, they received cheers for their reenactment of the assassination of the outlaw Jesse James. At other shows, their reception was not as friendly as Robert was called a murderer and a coward by attendees. That means the lie is number three. The James gang stopped their outlawing ways because Jesse killed his brother Frank after the blue cut train robbery. Even though it is true that the blue cut train robbery was the last for the James gang, it was not because Jesse killed his brother. Chris told us that Frank James had wanted to stop his outlawing ways for a little while, and so the blue cut robbery was his last. He just left the gang after that. That just about wraps up our time together today. Now, before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. It's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that's surprising to people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and effort goes into creating podcasts, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all those podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 26 hours to create the last hour or so of entertainment that you've enjoyed and cost $15.17 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 26 hours that it took to create the last hour or so of entertainment does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter that we talked about. It also doesn't include the time that it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not part of creating and producing this one episode. For example, the time that it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, uh, do social media for Based on a True Story, answer emails, and all those little things outside creating the actual podcast episode, the actual producing of the episode, that's still required to make an overall show. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $15.17, that's just for things specifically tied to this one episode, research material and things like that. It does not include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond this one episode. For example, the cost of the microphone I'm talking into right now, the cables hooked up to the microphone, the audio interface, the computer, the software on the computer, and all the podcast and website hosting costs, and on and on. All those things take time to set up and maintain and cost money that goes way beyond the things that are associated with just producing a single episode. But they're all things that are required because if I didn't do those things, then there wouldn't be any episodes based on a true story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it's not free to create. Not just in the actual cost, the out-of-pocket cost, but really in time. Those 26 hours that I spent to create this one episode are hours that I could be doing something else to help put food on the table for my family. 
And that's why I'm so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support this show financially so we can keep it going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. We're up to 55 minisodes with hours and hours of exclusive bonus content that's available immediately, and there's plenty more in the works for the future. It's all just a way of saying thank you for helping me to pay the bills that keep Based on a True Story going. Once again, you can find out how to get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And in the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.